Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the exhibit French in Florida is coming to the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. The images are important because they're among the earliest and most comprehensive illustrations of Native Americans that circulated widely in Europe at the time. We'll talk about late 19th and early 20th century progressive organizer Minerva P. Jennings. She was involved in a lot of patriotic, social, religious, and even historical organizations. In fact, she was a member of this organization, of the Florida Historical Society. Author and activist Alice Walker discusses the life and legacy of Zora Neale Hurston. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That song, composed by Philibert Jean de Fer, would have been popular among the French Huguenots who first came to Florida in the 1560s. The exhibit, French in Florida, opens at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa on Saturday, March 30th. The opening will feature a talk at 2 p.m. by Ben DiBiase. A regular contributor to this program, Ben is also editor of the book French Florida. As he explains, the French exploration of Florida began as early as 1561 and 1562 when the Huguenots first landed in northeast Florida. There were actually two French naval officers who were also Huguenots who headed up these expeditions, René de Laudonnière and Jean Ribot. Jean Ribot was actually in command of the first expedition who in 1562 landed somewhere near uh, the St. John's River, but they didn't actually establish a colony. At that time, they headed north to present-day Paris Island uh, on coastal South Carolina, where the U.S. Marine base is now, and they established a small fort there called Charles Fort. They left about 30 people behind, and both uh, Ribot and Laudonnière headed back to Europe to resupply, to, to bring more colonists back to uh, what they then called La Florida, but hadn't actually been settled by anyone. So they found to come back to the southeastern United States. Uh, but unfortunately, Ribot was in prison in England. Uh, Laudonnière had some difficulties uh, getting the financing together. This was right in the middle of a period that they called it the French Wars of Religion. There were a lot of issues with the Huguenots, these Protestant reformers in, in Europe, and there was a lot of religious infighting between 
Catholics and Protestants in France. So, so there were a lot of problems, and there were issues uh, with these Huguenots trying to get back to help out the, the colonists they had left behind. So in the meantime, over the course of about a year, all of the colonists rebelled. A few of them made their way back to uh, Europe. By the time that Laudonniere came back, he eventually secured the funding the ships and the men, he came back to Florida uh, in 1564. Which is when Fort Caroline was established at the mouth of the St. John's River, which the French called the River of May. And they had a, a pretty difficult uh, year. They did establish a fairly good relationship with the um, indigenous inhabitants of the region, but it was hard for them to survive. There were a lot of colonists that decided to rebel, and it wasn't actually until a, a privateer by the name of John Hawkins, an English privateer, came by and, and gave them a ship, and Laudonniere was ready to go in, in September of 1565 and bring all the uh, colonists back to Europe, uh, that Rabot, who had been released from prison in England, made his way back to Florida, and he essentially was convincing Laudonniere to stay. They were going to try and, and make the colony work in September 1565. But unfortunately, the Spanish had gotten wind of this expedition, and they sent a man named uh, Pedro Menendez de Aviles to Florida to destroy the colony. It was really just a matter of, of bad timing. The French had a, a brief interaction with the uh, Spanish at sea just outside of Fort Caroline. Rabot was actually heading south. A hurricane struck, destroyed the Rabot ships. Menendez had actually established what would become St. Augustine a few miles south of, of Jacksonville, and he actually uh, headed up an overland expedition to destroy Fort Caroline, uh, which he did in, in September of uh, 1565. The survivors of Rabot's uh, shipwrecks uh, slowly tried to make their way overland after the hurricane. Menendez met those men and, and killed them just south of St. Augustine at a place now called Matanzas, Matanzas Inlet. Holly Baker is also a regular contributor to this program and is manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco, where the French in Florida exhibit opens on March 30th. As Holly explains, part of what the French did while in Florida was to document the area's indigenous people. The exhibit focuses on images and text published in the 1500s by an engraver named Debray and a book called Grand Voyages, and it's based on the work of Jacques Lemoyne, the official artist for the French colonization expedition in 1564 and 1565. And the images are important because they're among the earliest and most comprehensive illustrations of Native Americans that circulated widely in Europe at the time. So when the uh, Spanish attacked Fort Caroline and destroyed the fort, there were a few people who survived. Two of those survivors were Laudonniere and an artist by the name of Jacques Lemoyne. And Jacques Lemoyne is, is believed to have uh, collected and done these, these drawings of the, the lives of the native inhabitants. These would have been the, the Timucuan-speaking people who were living in northeast Florida in the 16th century at contact period. And this collection of uh, what were originally uh, watercolors. Now, none of the watercolors that we know of survived, but those watercolors were brought back to Europe and were actually turned into uh, engravings by a Dutch engraver named Theodore de Bry. And Theodore de Bry included these in his his Atlas of the World that was published in the 1590s. And that kind of brought the uh, indigenous peoples of Florida to the European consciousness. So people became aware of uh, the, this group that was living in Florida, what their life was like based on this collection of scenes that Lemoyne had purportedly done back in, in the 1564 uh, when he was part of the Fort Caroline establishment uh, that was eventually destroyed. So we believe that he brought, or at least historically, the thought was that he brought some of of those watercolors back to Europe. Those watercolors were then converted into engravings that were then printed in the 1590s by Debray.
There were several different images that were intriguing to me. One was about uh, the mode of tilling and planting and then how the Native Americans cultivated their plants, millet and beans and grain and maize and whatnot. And uh, there was another one uh, to do with how to dry fish and wild animals and other provisions. And then uh, others about them uh, relaxing on the shores of the River of May, which is actually the St. John's River. There was an image of them interacting with what they called crocodiles, but they were actually, of course, alligators. And there's also a depiction of Fort Caroline. And so uh, it's a beautiful image of, you know, the triangular shape of Fort Caroline. The French in Florida exhibit is on loan from the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee, but the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa has created a new original panel about the recent discovery of French artifacts in the water off of Cape Canaveral. We created an original panel uh, to describe the sinking of Jean Rabot's ship. Archaeologists believe that they may have found some of the artifacts from that ship. And uh, so we wanted to create a panel to focus on the local aspects of the French encounters with Native Americans as well. As part of the French in Florida opening, Ben DiBiase will discuss the book that he edited called French Florida. It was published in 2014 to commemorate the 450th anniversary of the establishment of Fort Caroline. And it just so happened that in the Florida Historical Society archives, there was a manuscript, an unpublished manuscript uh, that was called French Florida. And it was done by a French historian by the name of Charles de la Ranciere. And Ranciere is famous for creating a 16-volume history of the French Navy. And a chapter of that history is the Huguenot expeditions to North America, including the French Florida expedition, which in the history of the French Navy, of course, it's just a footnote, even though it's a big part of Florida's history. Ranciere produced this this volume in 1928, and he actually entered into an agreement with the Florida State Historical Society, which was a contemporary of the Florida Historical Society, and they were planning on printing this uh, large format, limited run print, which included hand-colored uh, renditions of the original Debray engravings. It was really a beautiful piece of work. And the manuscript got to just about the last stages of production, and just before printing, the Florida State Historical Society essentially went belly up. They had no money to, to print this volume. The Florida Historical Society ended up with the entire collection from the Florida State Historical Society, which included this manuscript. So they essentially received the manuscript, put it in a box, it sat on the shelves for the next uh, 80 or so years, until 2014 when the Florida Historical Society Press uh, decided to republish this volume. So what we've done with the uh, French Florida volume was essentially keep it as it would have looked in 1928. So a lot of the footnotes, all of the narrative accounts, uh, the entire English translation of Ranciere's original work exists as it would have been printed in 1928. And what we've also included is the uh, hand-colored engravings. The engravings, unfortunately, we didn't have a complete set but at the University of Florida's P.K. Young Library of Florida History, part of the Smathers Library System, they had that second volume that hadn't been printed. So we combined the two together, printed it in this 2014 re-edition, and, and re-edited essentially the volume as it exists today. So that's what we're looking at right now is this 2014 volume, a compilation of all of these English translations, which include the first and only known 
English translations of the Dominique de Gorog revenge expedition of 1568, which is a fascinating little tidbit. After Menendez had destroyed Fort Caroline, in 1568, uh, a French privateer by the name of Dominique de Gorg came back and destroyed uh, the Spanish settlement that had taken over Fort Caroline in this uh, revenge expedition. So it's kind of an interesting uh, end to that French history chapter. And all of that is included, uh, or at least the first English translations are included in this volume. The exhibit French in Florida opens on Saturday, March 30th at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you can register for the 2019 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium being held May 16th through 18th at the Radisson Resort at the Port in Cape Canaveral. The theme of the event is Countdown to History, Ice Age to the Space Age. The conference features archaeologists, historians, and astronauts, exciting tours of historic sites, and more. Go to myfloridahistory.org to find out more and to register. That's myfloridahistory.org. I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor No one's ever gonna keep me down again Joining us again is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, today we're looking at a collection of documents by and about a fascinating Jacksonville woman named Minerva P. Jennings. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, Minerva P. Jennings was not originally from Jacksonville. In fact, she wasn't even a, a native Floridian. She was from Virginia and descended from a prominent Virginia family that had come over in, in the 17th century, and much of her family was from Virginia. She ended up marrying in the early 20th century and moved to Kentucky and then eventually down to Jacksonville with her husband, a man named Frank Jennings. And Frank Jennings was well known in Florida politics as a state politician. He eventually served as the Speaker of the Florida House of Representatives and was very very active in state and local politics in Duval County, of course, throughout the state of Florida. And Minerva P. Jennings was just as active. She was involved in a lot of patriotic, social, religious, and even historical organizations. In fact, she was a member of this organization, of the Florida Historical Society, back in the 1920s and 30s. But her activity really goes back to the turn of the century, the 1890s, up into the beginnings of the 20th century. In fact, she was very successful at uh, organizing women's uh, group events and, and eventually 
actually, between 1908 and 1910, uh, she rose to the rank of leader, actually chairman of the Florida Federation of Women's Clubs, which at the time, about 1910, boasted a a membership of around 6,000 women. And that included various organizations all over the state. And they had annual meetings in different cities throughout the state. And a lot of what they tried to do was to draft and lobby for legislative changes at the state level that would kind of fit in line with a lot of their organizational goals. And a lot of that, again, had to do with political and social reform in the early 20th century. So Minerva Jennings was active during Florida's progressive era of the early 20th century. What were some of these reforms that are happening during this time? Yeah, you're right. I think she's the perfect example of a progressive era woman working in Florida. So some of the examples of what she tried to do as head of the Federation of Women's Clubs was to push for social reforms such as an establishment of restrictions on child labor laws in Florida, which up to that point, by 1908, 1910, there were no restrictions. So children were working in factories. And remember, too, the progressive era is really a response to the rapid industrialization that's happening in America and the social deficiency that kind of went along with it. People were living in poverty. There were uh, serious health issues. She and a lot of the other women's groups pushed for state-funded tuberculosis treatment centers. They pushed for opportunities for women to not only find employment, but also seek education. In fact, what we're looking at here, this is an article from uh, the Tampa Morning Tribune published in May of 1915, and this has to do with the annual meeting of the Florida Federation of Women's Clubs, uh, and they're trying to describe essentially what the group did is dealing with. And it says here, Mrs. Jennings dwelt on the importance of the political science department and stressed the necessity of a women's knowledge of political machinery to make her more fit to direct the minds of her sons, unquote. So it's kind of an interesting interpretation of what the role, at least, of the woman in the household was. And she was pushing for political science education. Now, her husband, of course, is in the state legislature. And she, of course, had some knowledge of of what was happening at at the uh, local and state level. But she was pushing for more women to become actively involved. So this is kind of the the beginnings of the suffrage movements, the women's suffrage movements that were happening in the 20th century. She's an active part of that kind of organization. So Minerva P. Jennings was active even before women received the right to vote in this country, and she did uh, work actively toward that goal. Yeah, that's right, Ben. She was working as early as 1914 to try and lobby the state legislature to pass some form of reformed legislation to allow women to vote at, at least at the local level. Unfortunately, it didn't pass at that those early stages. It wasn't until the end of the decade that there was any kind of federal legislation that allowed for or um, granted the women the right to vote, you know, what we call women's suffrage in, in the 1920s. After that time period, Minerva P. Jennings became interested in the temperance movement, so the prohibition of alcohol throughout the state. She also worked to limit gambling that was happening throughout the state. And she also fought for the rights of Seminole Indians in Florida, which at the turn of the 20th century, the population of Seminoles was fairly small, and a lot of the Seminole tribal members were were living in poverty in the southern part of the state. So she pushed the state government to create uh, large grants, what would become uh, reservations, provide funding and education opportunities for a lot of the um, Seminole tribal members in the 1920s and 1930s, lobbied for more economic opportunity for these groups as well. She was also instrumental in creating what would become uh, Royal Palm Park, which is now part of the Everglades National Park. So this is kind of the conservation side of a lot of what she was doing and many other women's groups throughout Florida, including the Audubon Society and, and other larger groups that were working together to try and preserve this pristine area that became the Everglades National Park. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. 
Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see some of the items we've been talking about, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She recently spoke with writer and activist Alice Walker, who helped to bring Zora Neale Hurston's work back into the international consciousness. Ours is an amazing, a spectacular journey. It is so remarkable. One can only be thankful for it, bizarre as that may sound. Perhaps our planet is for learning to appreciate the extraordinary wonder of life that surrounds even our suffering, and to say yes, if through the thickest of tears. That was Alice Walker reading from her foreword in Zora Neale Hurston's recently published book, Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo. Novelist, poet, and activist Alice Walker is best known for her award-winning 1982 novel, The Color Purple. In the 1970s, Walker also had a major role in bringing national attention to the work of African-American writer and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. I recently spoke to Alice Walker during the 30th Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. She talked to me about Zora Neale Hurston, her life, and her legacy. I was living in Mississippi, and I was reading Their Eyes Were Watching God and just marveling at what a beautiful novel it is. And then I, I did a lot more research and discovered that she was virtually unknown. So after reading Their Eyes Were Watching God, I loved her. I loved her as a writer. I loved her spirit. And I set out to memorialize her and came and found her grave, or found, found a big hole in the cemetery that I assumed was her grave because I actually fell into it uh, and marked it. Uh, and since that time, I have, uh, you know, I think I did a, a couple of things. You know, one of them was a, an anthology of her work because it's so precious. By the time of her death in 1960, Zora Neale Hurston was destitute, and her literary legacy was largely forgotten. In 1973, Alice Walker found Zora Neale Hurston's unmarked grave in Fort Pierce, Florida. Alice Walker purchased a headstone for Hurston's resting place and had it inscribed, A Genius of the South. Alice Walker. It's partly her skill at at writing and conveying a whole world that most people didn't realize existed. It has to do with her encouragement to all of us to be more curious and more adventuresome and more real and more you know, dedicated to staying who we, we are intrinsically, you know, the, the decency, the kindness, uh, the spunkiness, the funniness. This is a woman who understands integrity. She understands what it means to really be yourself. She's a great encourager of human qualities that are often disparaged or ignored. And I think the, the kind of nutritional, the spiritual nutritional value of her work is absorbed by many people, and it has a definite liberating effect, you know. 
Alice Walker's 1975 article, published in Miss Magazine, called In Search of Zora Neale Hurston, introduced Hurston to a wider audience. Alice Walker. I was an editor at Miss Magazine at the time, and I was very interested in presenting some of the really incredible writers, especially African women writers, to the magazine, but also people like Zora. I mean, not that there's anybody else like Zora, but her her story was perfect for Miss. We had, you know, hundreds and thousands and maybe a couple of million or more readers, and they would be interested in such a pioneering spirit. They were women who were very alive themselves, and they wanted to read about other women who had spirit and spunk and craziness, yeah. In 1989, Walker was the speaker at the first Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities in Hurston's hometown of Eatonville, Florida. Walker recently returned to Eatonville as the speaker at the 30th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. I met up with Alice Walker in Eatonville during the festival, and she talked with me about Zora Neale Hurston's newly published book, Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo. The book is based on Hurston's interviews in 1927 with Cujo Lewis, the last known survivor of the African slave trade. Hurston wrote Barracoon in 1927, but publishers during Hurston's lifetime were not fond of the vernacular style of the book. Hurston refused to alter it, so the book was not published until 2018. Alice Walker. I think this book calls on all of us to develop, if we don't have it already, a certain pretty extraordinary degree of acceptance of the reality of the human condition. I think it's to remind us that we're just human beings. People often are just, as my mother used to say, they're doing the best they know how, that we um, do things to each other, we cause suffering to others, we hurt ourselves a lot, and we, you know, we, we need to do a lot of what uh, Cujo Lewis does at the end of his life, which is to find a place of sanctuary where we can be with our own thoughts and we can think about the kind of life we really would prefer to live, not so much for other people as for our own spirit. And basically out of gratitude for whatever it is that you, you do have. You know, we, we don't have so much, but we do have so much too. Alice Walker wrote the foreword to the book Barracoon. In the foreword, Walker describes the book as medicine. Here is the medicine, that though the heart is breaking, happiness can exist in a moment also. And because the moment in which we live is all the time there really is, we can keep going. It may be true, and often is, that every person we hold dear is taken from us. Still, from moment to moment, we watch our beans and our watermelons grow. We plant. We hoe, we harvest, we share with neighbors. If a young anthropologist appears with two hams and gives us one, we look forward to enjoying it. Life, inexhaustible, goes on, and we do too, carrying our wounds and our medicines as we go. This interview with Alice Walker is an excerpt from the podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities called Every Tongue Got to Confess. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. This song is called Shove It Over, and it's a line and rhythm pretty generally distributed all over Florida. 
It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida. Uh, that, I gathered that in 33, 1933. <clears throat> when I get in the ill and noise, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line it. Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.